to the Goal In Podcast. My name is Robert Russ, and I'm proud to be bringing you this show from Sydney, Australia. Today on the show, our guest is Brett Manders. But before I go into Brett's story and his incredible experiences that he's got coming up, I've got a few quick announcements. Now, in the last couple of weeks, I've had a whole boatload of listener questions come across my desk via text messages and emails and stuff, and people are asking me to do something more specific in the digital marketing space because I'm a digital marketer. They want to hear more podcasts about that. So I've gone away, and I've got some really great guests coming up in the next couple of weeks. There's going to be a three-part series that covers SEO, AdWords, and social media. Now, the guests that are coming on are going to be super successful business owners in their own right, and they've got amazing go-all-in stories as well. But on top of that, they've got some really practical and actionable points to share with you as well. So I'm really excited to be bringing you this series over the next couple of weeks as well. Now, the second announcement that I've got is that uh, we're going to be running a whole lot of competitions and giveaways in the Goal In Facebook group. So if you're not part of that group, make sure you pop on over and join in over there as well, because uh, I don't want you to miss out your chance to win. So as we mentioned, today on the show, our guest is Brett Mander, and I'm also joined by my new co-host, Kirsty Ferguson. Welcome to the show, Kirsty. It's great to have you here. Hi, Rob. It's fantastic to be here. I'm so excited to be doing this with you. Now, if you haven't heard Kirsty's podcast, it's number 13, and she's an internationally renowned coach and speaker. She's an author, and she's the owner of Pinstripe Solutions as well. And if you're looking for an exciting new career, then Kirsty and her team will help you prepare for the interview and set you up for the success that you're seeking. I've been waiting for ages to do a podcast, and our calendars have aligned at last, so it's really, really cool. Thank you so much for coming in doing this with us. We've got a couple lined up, so it's really exciting for me. Thanks, Rob. I was like really excited for you to ask me to do it. Here to be hosting with you at your studio as well. It's great. Today on the podcast, our guest is Brett Manders. Brett's an airline pilot with a major Australian airline. In his career, he's been he's amassed over 10,000 hours and his experience on the A320, the 31, sorry, the A321 as well as the A330, and he's also currently on the 787 Dreamliner. Now, if you've ever wondered what goes on on the inside of a cockpit of a passenger aeroplane, then you're in for a real treat on this podcast. I think Brett's going to be a little bit sick of me by the end of it, though. But he's the he's the author of Behind the Flight Deck Door. Do you have that there? Do you want to hold that up so the I viewers can see that? that? If you're watching this, if you're listening, obviously you can't see it. Now, Brett's the guy that can answer... All of the questions like, what happens when an aeroplane gets struck by lightning? What the hell does it mean when somebody says there's a small technical delay? What happens when you flush the toilet on a plane? And my God, every time I get off the aeroplane, I'm so damn dehydrated. What is that all about? And Brett's book demystifies and he shares with us what goes on behind the cockpit door, and he gives us a really great insight into the world of an airline pilot as well. Now, prior to becoming a pilot, Brett spent over 12 years in the Royal Australian Navy, and he was fortunate enough to deploy on operations several times as well. Now, this is a real treat for me, Brett. That's kind of a little bit self-indulgent, but hey, it's my podcast. I don't care. I've got a veteran. I've got a pilot. I've got a guy who can answer all of my pesky airliner question so this is going to be a super fun show brett welcome to the goal in podcast mate it's great to have you here thanks rob thanks Kirsty. thanks for having me and I, i've got to say rob hearing your voice it makes me feel like i'm driving to work because that's where i normally listen to the <laughs> podcast myself so. oh that's fantastic fantastic and uh hopefully you can 
I don't know if you're going to be listening to yourself. That's always a little bit of a weird thing to do, but sometimes I listen to my own podcast because it's kind of cool. Yeah, it is because you don't know what you sound like out there in the public, so why not? Sometimes I listen to the show and I say to myself... Yeah, but I don't, I don't, think, don't think anybody likes to hear their own voice, so I might, I might share it with some friends and family. I don't, I don't know if I'll go back and listen to it myself. Yeah, beautiful. Well, before we kick off the show and get into this, I like to start off all of my podcasts with a quick little get-to-know-you quiz. It's a little bit of fun. It warms up the grey matter, and maybe those friends and family that you're going to share this show with are going to learn something about you that they don't already know. It's pretty random. It's in no particular order. Just tell me the first thing that comes to mind when we ask you the question, and we'll just back and forth there and have a little bit of fun. Tell me, mate, can you fly a tail dragger? I have done some lessons in the tail dragger about three or four hours, so if I had to, I could fly one, but I haven't actually got the official endorsement, like the sticker in your logbook that says I can. How, how did you go dancing on those rudder pedals in a crosswind? Was that tricky? It's very tricky, yeah. It's, it's certainly a, a fine art and a skill, and that's why you have to do separate training and a separate endorsement to to actually fly an aircraft as a tail dragger. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Over to you. Well, because I haven't been in the Navy and I can't <laughs> fly anything, I'm going to ask what your first car was. Uh, my first car was a Ford Laser. It was actually our family mechanic. It was his wife's car, so I knew it was well-maintained and... Uh, Beautiful car. I should never have gotten rid of it. So, but there you go. <laughs> we went on to bigger and better things. What about if you went back in time? Is there anybody you would choose to sit down and have dinner with? Uh, look, if you go back in time, I think from sort of history, one of my favourite books is A Soldier's Way by General Colin Powell. Mm. I've got a very well-worn, dog-eared, underlined copy. His story is just amazing. He's an African-American guy who grew up probably in times in the States where equal opportunity probably wasn't as uh, big a thing as it is now. And he rose to the highest rank in the United States military where he was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And he's just got some very, really, really useful tips on leadership and management. And, you know, I relate that to stuff that I've done through my career. But this is a guy who was negotiating at the top of the, at the height of the Cold War. And it's just, um, it's a fantastic book. Yeah, it'd be fantastic to sit to down with someone like that. I've, I've got a, uh, a similar one that I like as well. His name's Colonel David Hackworth, um, and he's an infantry guy. So uh, I'm not sure if you if you know, but I was also in the Army as well. I was in the Navy first, and then yeah. I was in the Army. And, and so I've got a lot of that kind of creed as well inside of me. And I love the David Hackworth stuff. It's all about leadership, and it's about how to be an effective leader. And, and similar sort of thing to the Colin Powell story, David Hackworth was a leader in the Vietnam War and he, and he took over a battalion of draftees and those guys were just hopeless when they when he got there. They were, you know, they were running... It's the typical Vietnam movie stuff with the long hair and, and the peace sign symbols and, you know, their weapons were rusting because they didn't clean their weapons. They weren't an effective fighting force. Every time they went out, somebody got killed because they were blown up by a booby trap or a landmine, and he was the person who turned that unit around. And it's a really interesting story of, yep. of leadership and, and transition like that as well with a large group of people to get them all on the same sheet and, and moving them forward like that. Do you spend a lot of time reflecting on the military, or have you kind of pressed the Control-Alt-Delete buttons on, on that part of your life? No, not at all. Like Some of my good mates are all still ex-military, and yeah. I think it's the best grounding for anybody like in career-wise, just the things that will teach you about discipline and leadership and management, it's not something you'll ever really learn from a textbook. And I think that other jobs that I've got outside of the military, I think the military background has certainly helped because 
employers know that you're dependable. You, if you say you'll do something, you'll do it. You know how to manage and lead people. And, uh, yeah, I think it's a really great stepping stone for anybody, especially if you're not sure what you want to do. I'd, uh, I'd say go and try it for 12 months and uh, who knows where you'll end up. Maybe you'll end up the, uh, the top of the food chain like uh, Colin Powell did. Yeah, you never know, right? Would you have preferred to go into the Defence Forces as a pilot or, or it, it didn't bother you at that time in your career? It was just one of those things, Kirsty. I always knew I'd go into the military. Something about, I just always thought I'd do it. And uh, at the time, they said, oh, come and learn how to drive a ship. And yeah, later on, if you want to, we'll put you on pilot's course. And did that for a while. And I really enjoyed what I was doing. And I thought, oh, getting old now, I better better go and try and, and uh, change over to pilot. And they, they sort of wouldn't let me go because they were really short in the branch that they were in. So that was where I made the decision to to break the ties, but I still read the Navy news. I've got a cousin uh, who joined not long after me, and he's just ticked over 20 years. So, Oh, that's fantastic. I've got a couple of mates that are still in. Can you believe it? Gosh, and, you know, I was in. Yeah. I joined in the early yeah. 1990s, and one, one mate in particular, he only just recently got out. in there for a very long time, a very long career. So I would echo that comment that you said, that if you're not really sure what you want to do, the military will give you an absolutely fantastic grounding in your life like that as well. But I do like, I do meet a lot of vets that are like, oh, man, it's just like that was like another lifetime ago. It doesn't feel like it didn't even happen to me because so much happens afterwards like that yeah. as well. What about your transition from the military to the civilian world? Was was that a difficult one or was that an, a relatively straightforward one for you? Uh, that's a funny one, Rob, because when I left the Navy, I actually went and did my flying training up at a an academy up in Tamworth where the, the Defence Force actually yeah. do their flying training. Yeah. So it was. I still sort of had the connection with the military there, but um, I didn't have to get up and march across to the training side like the. I had actually mates that were doing their pilots course on the other side, and they were there marching, and I just wander over as, as a civilian, and so I had that connection there, so it sort of eased me into it. Yeah, very good, very good. I was wondering, actually, what would you tell pilots who are transitioning out of the Defence Forces right now into commercial aviation? What do you think is the, the biggest things that they need to know? It's a bit of a tough question. Oh, wow. Uh, there's a lot happening at the moment. Yeah, that's a, that's a curly one. I, I think one of the, the most important things is you've just got to put yourself out there through, through um, sort of professional social media channels like LinkedIn. That's how a lot of information will come about and... Certainly, you just got to update your online application sort of every month. And aviation is a very real real thing about networking and hearing about what's going on and, hey, this airline's expanding, so there's going to be jobs going here. And just really, really keeping your, your network and get other people to help you find that, that elusive first airline job. Absolutely. What do you think the, the biggest – do you remember what the biggest change was, though, for you? Change or change, um, maybe? Mm. So from, do you mean from going straight from the military to yeah. learning to fly or yeah, from, from the from general aviation? Okay, yeah, so from le- to learning to fly, yeah. I think the biggest thing was probably all of a sudden in the military, you've got a lot of responsibilities and things are really well maintained, whereas in general aviation, it's, <laughs> it's a commercial enterprise and money is what makes things go round and you'd always have to have that in the back of your mind, whereas in the military... The finance thing is not as big a big an issue because the government department. Not that the bucket of money is limitless. It's just different missions, you might yeah. say. So different priorities, different missions. Yeah, I like the way that you phrase that. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. 
Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that with us as a little way to warm up. Well, people come on over to the Go All In podcast to learn more about others that have gone all in. So if you could, mate, could you please share with us your biggest Go All In story or stories and the lessons that you've learned from your commitment to success? Well, I'm going to relate this to leaving the military again to go and fly. It was a big step to go from basically having a job for life to go into the unknown of a, a field I had no experience in. And I'll, I'll never forget my, my XO, who is the second in command, the guided missile frigate. He came and talked to me and he said, do you know how many unemployed pilots there are <laughs> in general aviation? And, you're going to go from having a job with a regular paycheck and all the associated benefits to not knowing. And uh, I had that burning desire. I just had to do it. And so I cashed in my chips in the Navy and went and learned to fly. That was in 2000. And uh, in 2001, obviously, September 11 happened and then ANSET fell over and there was pilots everywhere. And I remember going to try and get a job doing skydiving work and uh, there was ex-ANSET pilot there who had several thousand hours and I'm just like and I and I had that vision of the my XO sitting there telling me do you know how many unemployed pilots there are and I'm like what have I done but over the course of my career every every other pilot that I've come across has had some sort of setback and I think that those setbacks make you really appreciate and it makes the people who've who've eventually gotten there are the ones who stick with it and are dedicated and and just this or nothing and, and persist with it. Well, it's funny you should mention uh, ANSET because that's when I started my business was in 2000 when ANSET went under. And you were right, there were pilots everywhere <laughs> and cabin crew and it was sort of a whole new world. So I totally get where you're coming from when you say that. What about the, the yep. transition itself? I'm interested to know that part because you know what, it's, it's pretty exciting to go in it. It's a state of flux, but a state of transition is also exciting because there's the the certainty of, yes, I'm, I'm committing, I'm going to go all in on it. But then there's also the uncertainty of that, of what's on the other side of that, and that's scary. Did you take some time to really research and plan your training? Did you go all the way from, you know, from your GFPT back in those days all the way to your ATP? Or what did you do? How did you do that? Yeah, the, the course that I went through went from ab initio, which was no experience, all the way up to airline pilot's license with, multi-engine ratings, full 12-month residential course. Gosh, so that must My, have been uh, completely different to the Navy where you've had a job the whole time and then now you're a full-time student. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and look, I I knew I always wanted to do this, so I'd saved pretty hard to have money to get me through that. And obviously, family supported me during that as well. Did anyone think you were crazy? Yeah. Did, did anyone think you were crazy? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, people thought you're crazy. But everybody knew that, you know, I've wanted to be a pilot since, I don't know, I was about six or seven. So it was just one of those, is that, you know, the burn, burn your boats or whatever, where the, mm-hmm. the chief sails to the other island and burns the boat. So there's no going back. And uh, one of the things that I did was my first sort of week of doing the flying training, I wrote down all the things I actually hated about the Navy. So that'd be like being on duty, guts watch, which I'm sure Rob would know is the horrible sort of graveyard shift from 12 a.m. to 4 a.m. Yep, sounds horrible. And uh, guts watch. in the navy, yeah, you you don't you don't sleep during the day, so you're on watch from 12 a.m. to 4 a.m. and then you're still expected to work during the day. So I wrote all those words down and I stuck it on my notice board. And you know, when I started to drift off from studying, I'd see that and I 
I don't want to go back there. Yeah. I've got to knuckle down and nail this. Was it hard at any point? Because now that you're on the other side of all the training and you've had a pretty successful career and you're you're a 787 pilot, for heaven's sake, you know, you've, you've ascended the dizzy heights of the career of aviation flying, an incredible piece of technology. But when you rewind all the way back there, you made the decision to go all in and do it. Did you ever find yourself, you know, along the way there where you went, man, I, I've just bitten off more than I can chew. This is really hard. I don't know if I could do this. You ever doubt yourself? I, I think it's only human nature to doubt, doubt yourself. Have you have you made the right decision? But that you can always outwork that. And if you just do all those things that the military have taught you to prepare and plan, mm-hmm. you can hopefully account for unforeseen circumstances. Obviously not ANSET falling over or September 11 happening. But you're like, all right, well, I've done this. I've done my best. And then you can just like move on. What's the next thing that can help me and, and move on from there? And I, I'm sure that you'd find if you spoke to any pilot, they'd, they'd always have a similar story. Of you. And, and look, that happens when we're flying from day to day. Like you can be flying along and something could happen at the airport that you're going to. Pilots love to have options. Mm-hmm. So we, we're never, we have that backup option and that all that planning and stuff, we have that option. If this goes wrong, we've got another another choice that we can make. Well, there's kind of there's kind of a bit of a contradiction there, Brett, because you've got to have alternates. I get that as a pilot. That's you've got to have that plan B. But you were kind of saying that you had no fallback position. You know, if it didn't work with flying, did you really have no fallback? You couldn't. I suppose you can't go back to the defence forces, can you? I don't know. Or was there a it's plan? It's funny. B? It's funny you say that, Kirsty, because as I was speaking, I was saying. We've got to have options and fall back. And to me, that runs counterintuitive to go all in, doesn't it? So it's just part of that planning. You've got to have that option of, all right, I'm doing this, but if this doesn't work. And as, as you said, I did actually go back to the military. When uh, the money started to run out, I just went back as a reservist for a while and uh, just to get some more experience, some more money behind me, and then I knew I still wanted to go back to flying, and that that allowed me to do that. So it's kind of like you, you you didn't lose sight of the goal, but you had to go round it rather than straight at it because of the money thing. And the money thing is yeah. such a big problem in learning to fly. It's a massive commitment. It is. How, how much? Just for the people listening, you know, it, people always talk about it. Back in your day, it was a a, a lot of money to do it because it's all relative, right? to the time that you're doing it. You know, if you learned to fly in the 1980s, it was expensive then and it's expensive now. But if somebody was going to start... It was before my time. Well, we, <laughs> but if you're going to start and get into it today, you know, you're up for like 200 grand. You're, you're nudging 150, 200 grand from ab initio all the way to ATP, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like we, there's a famous saying in aviation circles that get your kids into flying and they'll never have money for drugs. So... <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty pretty um, true, yeah, right? Those those numbers that you talk about, Rob, is probably about what I spent prior to getting into the airline. But look, I there are ways that you could do it cheaper. But I was at a fully residential college that had all the facilities, so that probably cost a little bit more. And look, because of that cost that is there now, the the government, I think they actually allow training pilots to put some of it on heck. Like I can't speak as an expert on the, the ins and outs of that, but certainly they, they do allow you to put some of it on hex, which can certainly help if people are interested and don't have those resources. Yeah, fantastic. That's a really good thing. Well, it's 
going, deciding to go all in and commit and to do that is a really cool thing. And you, and you work your way through your career into an airline job. Just tell us a little bit about your relationship with Kirsty. Did you? Did she help you on the front end there? I what hope happened I there? did, Rob. <laughs> she, she certainly did, Robin. It's uh, as I said prior to the uh, recording button button being pushed. It's about ten years ago that I got in touch with Kirsty as an interview coach. And uh, I've actually used her services a number of times as I've gone through like promotion interviews for other positions within the airline. And she's been fantastic and hence the reason we've um, stayed in touch over this 10 years. And I think it was on the last, one of the last chats we had, I asked her about her book and I said, hey, I better tell you. I've written one as well. <laughs> I know. I was really excited to hear that. One thing, you know, because it has been such a long time that we've known each other, is that 10,000 hours, over 10,000 hours, why did you think you had to keep coming back to, to, to work with, with me? What was the, the core thing that kept bringing you back? I'm just wondering, personal interest. Look, I think most people, in, when they're going in for an interview, they'll have the the standard responses to the standard questions, you know, your strengths and your weaknesses. But I think having someone who does this day in, day out, whereas I might have done a couple of interviews over 10 years, Kirsty, you've probably prepped hundreds, if not thousands of people. Thousands. Over time, time, HR processes change. There's a lot of, I think there's there's a star format and, you know, they'll ask you a question, an open-ended question and the star is, you tell them about the situation, the time, what was your action, and what was the response. And that's not something that you're going to find necessarily online. You need that subject matter expert who can help you. And look, it, you're not trying to uh, con the interviewer or something. It just is there helping you tidy up your responses. And it will also, the most important thing is give you the confidence. And that's what it did for me. And that's why I continued who uh, stay in touch with Kirsty. Yeah, it's like a refresher and it's like, you know this stuff, we're just going to go over it and, and you know, give it your best shot. I, I, you know, that's what I was um, thinking you might say. Look, you did mention the book and absolutely love what you've done with Behind the Flight Deck Door. Um, you sent me a beautiful autographed copy, which I will keep forever. I've got like big marks in it now, those areas that I found particularly interesting. So tell me, how did you, and I know you were doing a uni degree at the same time, so how did you write a book, do a uni degree, and then get your next big job all at the same time? That's part of that military planning and uh, time allocation. It's, I've had a lot of people say, how on earth have you done that? And uh, yeah, it's been, been pretty hectic. I've got about three weeks left of my last uni subject, so when that last essay is submitted, oh, man, I, I cannot wait. It'll be nice to have a little bit of downtime. It just just required a lot of a lot of planning. And look, one of the benefits that I have in my job is sometimes I, I go away and I'm in a hotel and I'm like, all right, I'll sit down and I'll just punch out a little bit of typing, whether it's for uni or the book. And that way, when I'm at home, I can try to spend quality time with the family, which not everybody gets the chance to do that. So, so it's like if you're away on um, an overnight or what have you then there's no TV, there's just I'm doing these, committing to doing, I'm doing a bit of the book or I'm doing a bit of the study. That was the, the plan that you had. So a little bit every day rather than trying to go, okay, I just have to work on the book right now. Yeah, yeah. It's one, when I was thinking about coming in on the interview about the, the go all in, I started the book a couple of years ago and early last year I said, nah, this is, I've got to get this done within the next 12 months. And I heard a, on another podcast, if you want to be a writer, 
you've got to sit in the chair. And even if you write one sentence a day, because there's always other stuff you, you can do. You, you got to walk the dog. I want to go to the gym, do washing, get dinner ready. But if you make that commitment, get back from the school drop-off, sit down and write one sentence. And that might be all you do for one day. But the next day, you might write a paragraph. The next day, you might write a chapter. And that's what I did in that last 12 months. And I probably doubled what I wrote in the last 12 months. So a lot of people think writing is about just full creativity. But... It sounds like it's a lot more, and I found the same thing about just got to commit to it. Just got to do it, whether you feel like it or you feel creative or not. Just got to do it every day. Absolutely, absolutely. It's just sit in the chair was the, the three word phrase he had. No, that's four, isn't it? Sit in the chair. Four. <laughs> you, you know that not many people know, but the pretense of this podcast was a book. I, oh, was, I didn't know that. Yeah, well, I was trying to write a book. And for people that have written a book, whether it's a big fat one or it's a little skinny one or something in between, I've, I've always been inspired by that. I, I grew up loving books. My mum loved books and there was always stuff around and I, and I found that as well. And in the Navy, back in, back in the day, before there was internet and before there was all the stuff that we have these days, we had books. And I used to read a lot of yep. books like that as well. And, and the pretense of this podcast was me sitting down trying to commit to learn how to do that. And, and I think I'm a pretty good writer because I've you know, worked in the corporate world for a long time, creating presentations. I've, I'm able to articulate myself with words quite well. And I was about 150 pages into it. And I was like, you know what? I don't actually want to write a book. <laughs> what I wanted to do was, was actually have conversations and um, share my opinions that's what it was, you know, and I was always fascinated by people's mindset about commitment and what they needed to do. And, you know, my commitment to sit there and get 150 pages into something that I thought was pretty good. And I look back at it and it's still pretty good. I'm, maybe I'll go back to it. But the commitment that it takes and the dedication and the effort, you really do have to sit in that chair that I would echo that so much, right? Do you feel bad about the fact that you gave up Absolutely. doing that? No, because I didn't make a commitment to go all in. Ah, so that's the difference. So that's the dichotomy, right, is that I, I said, yeah, yeah I, want, I want to do this, but, you know, what you just said there was, no, nah, this is the year I'm going to sit down, I'm going to do this, I'm going to get it done. I was sort of faffing around with it, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to write a book, I should do that. That's, that's an important thing that would help me become a bit more of an influencer and be better like that. But actually, it's a whole lot easier just to talk into a microphone and produce a show. I agree. Having, you know, my second book, I agree. This, yeah. is, this is easier than writing. Yeah, way easier than writing. Yeah, and I've had a yeah. couple of writers ask me, hey, Rob, can I come on your show? Can I come and do this? Hey, Rob, can you teach me how to do that podcasting thing that you do? And it's like, yeah, I can teach you how to do that because I don't want to write anymore. <laughs> so tell us about your the, the, the creative process. I mean, as an airline pilot, you go to places and you meet a lot of different people. You travel the world and there must be an endless stream of questions. I've been an aviator my whole life. I've been reading this magazine since I was like a little kid as well, probably like you. And I've still got questions about aeroplanes and helicopters and stuff like that. Is, is that the genesis of your book? Pretty much, Rob. So save the questions that aren't in that book. I'm, maybe I'll work on volume two when this degree <laughs> is finished. Yeah. Good idea. But a couple of years ago, I went back to a school reunion and, you know, you're just talking with people and oh, what do you do? I'm a pilot. And I said, oh, you always wanted to be a pilot. And then the question started. And anyway, I got, got back home after the reunion and just said, I got so many questions. And just on a whim, I wrote down all the questions I was asked. And I thought, oh, I think I explained them all pretty well. Maybe this could be turned into something. And so on the, on the next overnight, 
in the coffee shop instead of reading the local paper and I just started typing and, and without even trying I got to, you know, several thousand words wow. which when you're doing a uni assignment that's that's a target that you've got to go for whereas this, it, it just came quite naturally and so uh, just it really grew from there and over time just added questions to it and then had to tidy it into sections and enrolled in a in a short course about getting your your own book self published mm-hmm. and okay. working with a lady from Inspire Media, her name's Julie Hoskonson. And uh, she every month I'd sort of go and meet with her and she would help me with it's quite involved. I was initially worried that someone would take my idea and copy it. But uh, there's a lot of work there. involved. Yeah, when yeah. you start putting it out there, yeah. that is it is a concern. It's a concern of businesses as well when you start off as totally. like somebody's gonna take it yeah. and do it quicker then I'm going to do it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But fortunately, no one's done something the, the way that I have, which was a, a sigh of relief. So. And do you think, you know, looking at the book, for me, it's not for other pilots. It's for passengers. It's for anybody that really doesn't have anything to yeah. do with aviation. Uh, and that's what I found really interesting. That's right. I'm in aviation, and I learned a lot from it because I'm not a pilot. And there's stuff that I just don't know. Yeah. Yeah, look, I, I don't expect pilots to, to buy it. They're not going to really learn anything that they don't already know. It's more for the, the general travelling public who's got queries about it. But that said, I've, I've had a couple of peers buy the book and they've, they've really enjoyed it. They said they can see my personality shine through and the, the humour that I use in it to, to make it an easy-to-read book. Oh, nice one. So tell me, I've got I've to ask, you've got like, Thousands of questions people ask you all the time. What's the what's the one that stands out in your mind? What's the curly one that people throw at you and you go, "Oh my, you roll." Does you have the eye roll? Where you're like, "Oh my god, really?" Oh, the probably the most common one is when we go out to the toilet and just have a leg stretch. It's like, "Who's flying the plane?" It's like, yeah, there's another pilot, another pilot in there. But that's probably the most common. But nervous flyers are really still a common common thing. Like yeah, right. we'd we'd have them on almost every flight and. Any sort of turbulence or weather that they they've got questions about those, and we we just explain how how risk averse pilots are, and we will do our best to avoid the bad weather because we're we're in it as well. Yeah. Look, one thing that I was reading was you're talking about a noise when you were taking off or landing, and that people think it's a dog barking. And you know what's funny is that my dog has been transported on aircraft quite often, and that is him. I know that noise, isn't it? In the pushback. He does. Uh, he uh, howls uh. <laughs> on takeoff until we, you know, level out. But it's not that, is it? You know, it does sound like that. What is the actual sound again? So what that is is it's just the hydraulics in uh, a particular brand of aircraft have, have got a way of transferring power from one system to the other, and it's called a, a PTU, a power transfer unit, and it pumps cycling on and off and the sound that it makes and it goes through the insulation that's in the aircraft, it just makes that dog barking sound. So when people say to me, oh, you can hear a dog, and I say, yeah, you probably can. I'm totally wrong. <laughs> do you ever do that to some of the questions? You just kind of agree. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. It is a dog. All right, look, yeah. Yeah, look, sometimes, depending on, on where you are, you might we might have to get back into the flight tech because we're about to descend or something, and you have to you have to end the conversation quickly. But uh, yeah, we, we do it with uh, the most decorum that we can. Do, do you have a lot of questions from, more questions from adults or from kids? Adults are probably a little bit more reserved, whereas kids have no filter. <laughs> but I love getting, love getting them up in the flight deck because it's just, they're impressive pieces of machinery to have a look at. And uh, yeah, like, oh, 
can we take photos? And they're like, yeah, take photos, go for it. And uh, then we tell the parents that unfortunately that's probably going to cost them a little bit of money in flying lessons in the future. But yeah, That's so just can, the way it is. Yeah, so they can still go up there. I thought that that was all banned now. Uh, it is after flight. Once a flight is completed, then it's okay if, if it's been run through the captain. But by that stage, most people just want to get off the flight. And but, but some people are genuinely interested and they do love coming up and having a look. It just depends on the length of flight and the age of the kids and how tired they are. And So they should ask you before the flight takes off if they can come in afterwards? Is that... uh, it, ask, ask, if you see the pilots, ask the pilots or ask the cabin crew and they'll get a message to us. And uh, Provided it's not like a training flight or something, most pilots are more than happy to show you the office. Well, there's a little tip there, right, that most people don't know. In, in the age of terrorism and security and all of that stuff, exactly. you still can have a little bow peep in the yep. flight deck up the front there. That's, Absolutely. That's really yep. cool. Right, you, you talked about different aircraft types there. I've got to ask, man, it's a loaded question, right? Which one do you prefer, is it a Boeing or an Airbus? I've actually put that in the book. And, uh, look, you've got to love the one that you're with, but I certainly I do, I do like the way Boeing's got this machine. It's pretty flash, so I'll... Mm. Put in the Boeing camp right now, so very nice. And what's what's different when you when you line up at the threshold? You're you know you got you're about to take off. What's different in a Dreamliner than an Airbus three hundred and thirty? How are you feeling different in a in a Boeing to, compared to an Airbus? Probably the the main difference is that the Airbus has a side stick controller, mm-hmm. whereas the Boeing still has a conventional control column. There's words and phrases that are slightly different, but the end product is still the same, that you get airborne and uh, take you to some hopefully exotic destination. What was it like when you first got a hold of a, of a Dreamliner? That Because it's the most modern airliner in the world, albeit except the A350, but you kind of ride up there and, and you, you were one of the first Dreamliner pilots out there of, of generation, so to speak. What was that? That must have been a real privilege for you. Oh, absolutely. It's, sometimes you'll, you'll feel, oh, I've got to go to work again. But when you like, went on there, like it could be, you know, like going to work on a Friday night and you're gone for the weekend. But uh, when you're there and you see like these happy faces of people who are going on a holiday, you do realise how privileged a position that you are in. And you, I certainly don't take it for granted because you could lose your medical with a stroke of a pen and it could be all over. That, that's obviously a, a morbid sort of thought, mm. but... No, absolutely. Feel feel very privileged, very lucky to, to to do what I do. It did take a lot of work to get there, um, but I'd certainly encourage anybody if they want to do it to uh, just go for it. Go all in. Go. It's worth it, right? It's worth it. That's why. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, there's a big there's a big push at the moment um, saying that we're going to have uh, artificial intelligence flying aircraft as well. So, and people think you don't actually fly a lot. Is that true? Hand flying the aircraft. In the media, a lot of times they will say that pilots only fly for, you know, two minutes for every flight that they do. And what they're relating to is the actual manual manipulation of controls. The autopilot will do some of the things we can do a lot better. It just anything that can be codified can be automated. But what isn't talked about in those circles is we are still flying the aeroplane, but we're telling the autopilot what we want to do. Mm. So we could be coming into land and air traffic control may tell us they want to slow down, but we could have a tailwind behind us and we need to increase our rate of descent. Those two things are mutually exclusive. You can't do both and you can't tell a computer to do both. But what we would have to do is control the autopilot through our manual input, 
even though the autopilot is still actually flying the aeroplane. And that allows us to process the information that we need to know what's coming next. We always try to be ahead of the aeroplane. So that human element is super important, having the human element overseeing all of the technology. That, that's right, that's right. And that never goes away. That, no. That's never, ever going to go well, away. When there's it. people in the back, there's always going to be people in the front. Yeah, and yet that conversation is, is everywhere well, in the media at the so. moment. Yeah, you know what it is? It's, yeah. a, it's a doom and gloom and, conversation because if you kind of eliminate people from airliners, it's a doom and gloom and it gets people to click. That's what it is. But the, in reality, it's never going to yeah. happen. That's true. But do you think because we've got this massive pilot shortage or shortage of experience worldwide that they're saying, well, that's going to go away with artificial intelligence? But it's not. I can't see that it will. What do you think, Brett? Yeah, it's a very simplistic thing and it's it's clickbait. It gets people to have a look at. I don't think I'd jump on a plane if I didn't realize, no, there was someone up the front who had just a vested in getting to the destination as me. You know, there's been... there's self-driving cars but if something goes wrong with a self-driving car it can shut down and pull over to the side of the road airplanes work in three-dimensional space and we also you know encounter weather and and things like that how would you get airplanes taxiing around the infrastructure at airports alone would be cost prohibitive but that said if i could log on to a computer and work from home who knows maybe it's not what such they, a bad thing you know, I, I think yeah. the closest example yeah. to, to that is um, autonomous trucks. There's a lot of trucks in the United States that are autonomous vehicles, but they still have a driver at the controls. Um, so they, you know, they get in the vehicle, the vehicle's loaded up, they press the button, but the driver still supervises the thing. I mean, you, you're a heavy vehicle, sort of 30, 40 tonnes, driving around automatically from one side of the country to the other. Sure, it can do it, and sure, it can all happen, but it still requires an operator to sit there and to manage the systems that are there. And I don't think that that yep. is ever going to go away in human history. I did not know that. Oh. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't that? All right, just hold that thought there for a second. Just a quick message from our sponsor today. And today's Go All In podcast is brought to you by Pinstripe Solutions, no less. And Pinstripe Solutions has been preparing candidates to succeed in their careers since the year 2000. And they specialize in aviation, defense forces, and emergency services. And Pinstripe Solutions work in aviation, covers both pilot and cabin crew roles for over 40 different airlines worldwide. We support you from resume preparation right through to the interview process and any industry-specific testing as well. Our courses, products, and one-to-one mentoring are designed to meet your individual needs. So be prepared, get ahead, and visit pinstripesolutions.com to find out more today. How was that? Did I read your ad right? That was great. That was fantastic. That was pretty good. It I was up you there. You covered just about everything. And the guest can echo everything that was in the ad. Exactly. Absolutely. Oh, yep. Exactly what you said. It certainly helped me. Fantastic. Make, make use of Kirsty service. But I think this is the last time that I'll be seeing you, Brett, because uh, you're in your dream job. That was actually my next question. When, when you when you achieve the dizzy heights of the, the 787 Dreamliner pilot, what, what's next for you? It's a funny question. Like, it's something that you work on for so long, and you're like, you really are. What, what's next? And I've, I've had the book come out. I'm about to finish the degree, and I'm like, what's going to happen? I think I might take a little bit of downtime just to recharge the batteries for a bit. But then, uh, I'm not sure. I think I'd like to learn computer coding mm-hmm. and just see where that goes. Um, maybe do? I could They're code the. Uh, depends how many questions I get. I've, uh, I haven't, haven't come across. Too many new questions yet, 
but uh, who knows? Or maybe I'll start a start a notebook, just writing down questions from uh, readers or feedback that I receive. Well, I've got a couple of things that I could probably fill in some blank time with for you if, if you would be interested. And, you know, no no commitments on the air, on the podcast or anything like that. But I'm the Chief Operating Officer for Australian Aviation and we always need contributors to that. And you're in the aviation space. You're, you're right. an airline pilot. so and, and a writer. And a writer. And a writer. And a writer. <laughs> so that's something that you can kind of uh, keep there in your back pocket. And if you're interested, just reach back out to me and we'll hook you up. All right, excellent. Sounds like a great idea. Just be careful what you wish for, right, because we'll load him up. Absolutely. I started 12 months ago with with, uh, Australian (laughs) Aviation, and it's the best thing I ever did, so if you want to. All right. Come on over. There's a little opportunity. I might have to clear that with the – I'll have to probably clear that with the higher authorities, but uh, I'll certainly investigate. Sounds fun, mate. Excellent. All right, well, we can't let you go and leave the interview with Art without asking you about your daily non-negotiables. What What is it that keeps you sharp and focused and in such an important job where you're so responsible for so many people? What is it that you do to keep bringing your A-game every day that's just not negotiable? Rob, I thought about this, and it's going to sound, to me, it sounds a little bit counterintuitive to go all in, but I think the most important thing for me is sleep. Um, there's... <laughs> I, I, I live with jet lag. I've got to make sure I get good quality sleep because if I don't, that I won't be motivated to go on exercise during the day. I need a sugar hit so the diet goes out the window. Then I'm grumpy at home. Doesn't make for a uh, not conducive to a, a harmonious family life. So not lots of sleep, just good quality sleep. So you know, if we've got a night flight, I'll try and nap. And I've got to get better at relaxing because I don't do that very well. But sleep is a non-negotiable try to exercise every day. Fortunately, I've got a dog. I don't know if you've heard him barking during the interview, but uh, <laughs> he's got to get a walk every day and that fresh air can just help to recharge the batteries. Great. Awesome. I have a dog too and I say to everybody, if you really want to exercise every day, get a dog and one that can run. So I, I hear you there. Yeah, nice That's one. It. All yep. right, mate. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate you sharing your go in story and sharing your lessons and, and what it's like to be an airline pilot and what it actually means to be successful on the other side of all of that hard work. Have you got any parting shots for us before we let you go? Thanks. Thanks for having me, Rob. I, I don't know if I'll actually listen to this podcast. I do listen to the other <laughs> one. But if anybody is interested in the book, it's on uh, Amazon, iBooks, or you can look at behindtheflightdeckdoor.com and uh, you can see some of the pictures and some of the text that I've put in there to get an idea of uh, what the book is actually about. We'll have it on the Pinstripe Solutions website as well. No doubt it'll be on uh, Go All In as well. Yeah, absolutely. We'll make sure all of those links are included in the show notes. And that just about wraps it up for the show today. I'm Robert Bruss, and bye for now.
Let's go. 